Is Kelly in the nursery then? Did, did the phone call, did Bruce leave with a phone call? It's all planned, wasn't it? <laughs> this morning's scripture, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, the first three verses. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, as we endeavor on this new book this morning, Father, this wonderful epistle, we pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our hearts and minds, that your spirit would show it to us in a new way and help it to apply or help us to apply it to each one of our lives, Lord, and help us to apply it to our church as well. And that through that all, you may be glorified, Lord, and I pray the words I speak be not of me, but be of you. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, bear with me this morning. I'm a little out of practice. I think that technically this is the fifth week because Nathan jumped in the last week before we left for vacation, and then we've been gone three weeks, so... I was, I was thinking about it before I came up here. I think it's the first time in nine years that I have gone that long without being behind the pulpit. So I've missed it. Don't know if I can do it anymore or not, but hopefully God will guide me. But again, I thanked you earlier, Brad, but I'll, I'm thanking you again now, nonetheless. So, all right. So uh, I, announced, I announced before I left... Uh, I guess five weeks ago as we wrapped up Romans that we're just going to jump right on into Corinthians and that's where we're at this morning. So we went through Acts several years ago, then it took us a few years, I think a little over three years to get through Romans and now we're moving right along into Corinthians. Uh, Look at a little history on the letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, Scholars believe that it was written about 53 or 54 AD, so the church was pretty young at the time little over 20 years old at the time this letter was written. They believe that it was written, obviously, by Paul, we're going to see, toward the end of his second missionary journey, and that it was likely written while he was in Ephesus. So he was writing this, he had been to Corinth, and he was writing this letter to, to them as a type of encouragement and a type of direction on how they should be, go forward I'm sorry? Bear with me? Okay. I, I appreciate that gig. I just want to make sure you stay awake the whole time this morning. So this is actually the second letter to the church at Corinth. And you say, well, it says 1 Corinthians. No, this is the actual second letter. So how do we know that? We know that if you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians and turn to chapter 5, verse 9, when I wrote to you before. I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. So clearly, at some point in time, Paul had written a letter to the church at Corinth prior to what he's writing now. But as I told Brad last week, whenever they were frantically back there trying to see if his sermon was recorded or if it would be published on their website, I said God didn't want that message to get out. So it's pretty obvious that God did not want that first letter to the church at Corinth to be advertised and get out all over the world because 
it's a missing letter. We don't know where it's at. We really know nothing of it other than the fact that Paul wrote to them prior to this time. So as we look at the very town of Corinth, and we've hit on it because a lot of Paul's visitation to Corinth was in Acts, and we went through a lot of it when we were in Acts. Corinth was a large trading city at the time in the New Testament, and today it's a rather small city. Today the population is around 35,000 people. So it has dwindled in size since the times of the New Testament. And so you can kind of see where it sits there, that we have Greece to the north and then the Peloponnese Peninsula to the south and to the west and to where it says the Ionian Sea, that is the Mediterranean Sea, and to the south east it would be down there is the Aegean Sea. So there is an isthmus, it's a piece of land that connects two areas that's connecting the Peloponnese Peninsula with Greece. And you see Corinth is right in the middle of that. So Corinth was a big trading city. There was a lot of trade that passed right through the middle of Corinth. And it also had seaports, both in the Mediterranean Sea and both in, at the Aegean Sea. And you can see Sincrea down there. And we've talked about Sincrea. Anybody remember what that was? Talked about it to close of Romans. It was the young lady that he sent to Rome with his letter, and she was from the church in Sincrea. So you see that mentioned there as well. But Corinth was a bustling town, and the seaports there were very important, as well as the people going back and forth for trading purposes. Now, the weird thing about Corinth is to get from the Mediterranean Sea to Athens in the lower part of Greece over there you had to go all the way around and I cut out part of this map you had to go all the way all the way around the Peloponnese Peninsula and sailors despised that because it was extremely dangerous there were a lot of storms that took place down at that southern tip of that peninsula you didn't dare go around that peninsula unless you had a very large boat or ship and they just didn't like to do that and now there is a canal that connects where you see the Gulf of Corinth with the Aegean Sea. There was not one then. But the sailors so despised going around that peninsula and were so scared of it. As a matter of fact, one of the policies was before you got to sail from the Mediterranean around the tip of the Peloponnese Peninsula to the Aegean Sea, you had to have your will made out because it was very likely that you weren't coming back. So they were so afraid of that, what they would do is they would dock their boats there in the Gulf of Corinth at the Corinthian, on the Mediterranean side of Corinth. They would lift the boat up and roll it on round, long timbers underneath the four miles across the Isthmus to get to the Aegean Sea so they wouldn't have to travel all the way around that peninsula. So they were really worried about the travel, and it tells you a little bit about what Corinth saw as you had actually boats was going through the edge of town on dry land and that was quite often the way that they decided to go to the Aegean Sea whenever they were in the Mediterranean Sea. Corinth was an incredibly worldly city and you can imagine you had 
all this trade coming through. You probably had pirates there. You had every sort of person imaginable that was in Corinth during this time. It was filled with evil of every sort, of every sort of sin, debauchery, you name it. That was Corinth. And if you remember, whenever we went through Acts, Paul came to Corinth and he became kind of depressed. He looked around and he really didn't want to do anything but kind of keep to himself and return back to Jerusalem as fast as he could. But God had different plans for him and pulled him up out of that sense of depression that he was in. So, like most trading centers, it was an incredibly rough city. Not a place that we would probably like to to hang out in. So we see here the letter in and of itself. We've talked a little bit about the city, but the letter in and of itself addresses a lot of different issues with respect to the church in Corinth. As I said, the city was full of all types of evil and sins and debauchery, and that was creeping into the church. And you're going to see that as we move throughout this letter. All sorts of sin was present within the church, and the church was young. I said, but a few years old. Really didn't know how to navigate the issues that it was facing. And so that's part of Paul's reason for writing them this letter. They were having an exceptionally difficult time of being able to determine the morality of the world from the morality of God's Word. Because the world was infiltrating the church and they were caught up in that way of thinking and it was a tough transition for them. It was very difficult for them to know how they should be acting and what they should be doing and how the church should be running. And they leaned very heavily on Paul for guidance in every respect. We'll see in chapter 7 that not only did Paul write to the church at Corinth, but the church at Corinth wrote to Paul asking for guidance. What should we do given this situation? What should be how we deal with this situation? And he was quick to always give them advice. This letter addresses several different issues, and I'll just go run through just a few of them. It addresses godly wisdom and how we should seek it, how we gain it. Addresses divisions in the church. The church at Corinth was no doubt divided on multiple different issues on a multitude of different times. Sexual immorality was a big problem in this church. Lawsuits against other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ, suing other brothers and sisters in Christ. Several marriage principles, things that bind a husband and a wife together. Food that had been sacrificed and offered to idols. Idolatry. The Lord's Supper, partaking of the Lord's table. Spiritual gifts, large section, multiple chapters on spiritual gifts. And it gets followed up and interspersed with love. And a great deal of, or Paul had a great deal of things to say about love. 
the resurrection. The resurrection both of believers and non-believers as well as the resurrection of Jesus. And those are just a few of the things that we will deal with and that this letter addresses as we go through it. Like Romans, and the entire Bible for that matter, even though this letter was written to the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago, I think that you will find that it's very applicable to us today as we read it and we go through it. We face similar struggles and have faced similar struggles that the church at Corinth faced. And we will continue to face those struggles until Christ comes and takes us home. It has applications to us as individuals and it has applications to us as a church. There may be some things in here that you disagree with or you don't like or you struggle with. That's okay. There are things in this letter that I struggle with, that I wrestle with. Because there are some things in here that are hard. Just as there were some things in Romans that were hard. Just that there are a lot of things in the entire Bible that are hard. But let us endeavor to examine and wrestle with these things together. Knowing that God's word is true. God's word is unfailing. It is inerrant in every way. So with that brief introduction, let us begin this journey. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And our brother, Sosthenes. Paul begins this letter as he does almost every, or he does every other letter to a church in the New Testament. We're leaving Hebrews out there. But he begins it by introducing himself. And we don't write this way today, do we? We write with dear or to whom it may concern or whatever the case may be. And we leave the ending for our signature to identify ourselves. But Paul always wrote with that introduction. The Greeks always wrote with that introduction. It was the way of saying, hey, it's me and we don't have to flip because when you get a letter, usually what's the first thing you do? We don't get letters much, but yeah, you flip to the back page. Say, I want to know whether I'm going to believe what's in this letter or not based upon who it's from and how much time I'm really going to take to read it. But that takes care of a lot of the problem whenever you begin the letter with the introduction. Now, the phone's a different story, right? You call somebody on the phone. Now it doesn't work because everybody's got caller ID and you've got your name stored, so you usually know who it is. But if you don't, then you always introduce yourself on the phone, and that sets up the rest of the conversation. And so that's what Paul was doing here. He was introducing himself at the very beginning of this letter so that they know who was doing the writing. And he's letting them know that right out of the gate. Now, I want us to pay careful attention because this is the biggest thing I want you to take away from this morning's message. And it is how Paul defines himself. How Paul defines himself. He defines himself as being called. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's how Paul thought of himself. You know, 
People try very hard to define themselves. We all do. It's human nature. We try to define who we are or what we want everyone to believe about us or to think about us. We all desire it. The the world attempts to aid us in doing that. The world tells us that we can be defined by what we wear, right? Tells us that we can be defined by what we drive, by the home that we live in, by the size of our bank accounts, what our bodies look like, our occupation, whether we're successful or not in the eyes of the world, even our sexual desires. Commercials focus on us defining ourselves by getting the product that they are advertising, right? You get these sunglasses and it's going to define you as somebody who is way cool. You drive this car, that's going to be who you are. That's what defines you, this 2023 Chevy whatever. We want to be defined by something or someone because it becomes part of our identity, of what we are. I would say, and I would venture to guess, especially for the men and sometimes for the women also, but we have a habit of defining ourselves by what we do, right? We define ourselves by our occupation, quote, unquote. People get so caught up in their occupation that it defines who they are as human beings. There are men and women out there that have devoted every waking hour of their existence to their occupation. And that endeavor comes at a great cost. It comes at a very high cost. More times than not, they have no substantive family. It doesn't exist or it is in shambles. They have no other real meaningful relationships in their lives. They can't retire. They can't retire because the very thing that defines them is what they do. And if they retire, then that defining characteristic of their life is gone. That becomes very problematic. It's unfortunate. It is a lack of proper perspective and understanding of life and eternity. Paul was a tent maker. Don't forget that. Paul was a tent maker. That was his occupation. However, that didn't define Paul, and I'm quite certain he was a good tent maker. He didn't write this letter to the church at Corinth and say, I, Paul, the best tent maker in Greece... Paul was defined by being called by the will of God. 
That's what made Paul, Paul. That's why Paul existed. That's why he drew air in his lungs and exhaled air out of his lungs. Not by any other or for any other reason. Clearly, God gave him the skills to be a tent maker. Yet, that wasn't what defined Paul. God defined Paul. Paul wasn't defined by anything else. He was defined by being a child of God, called by God to do the work of an apostle. Now, it's not to say that we shouldn't do the very best job that we possibly humanly can do in our occupations. Absolutely, we should. We should work hard and take pride in our work. It's a little bit different. Not so that we get the glory, not so we get identity from that occupation, but so God gets the glory. We have his name. We have taken the name of the Lord. How do we make him look when we go to work day after day? By what we do. It's not how we make ourselves look, it's how we make God look. And Paul's going to tell us when we get to chapter 10, verse 31, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it for who or what? The glory of God. So don't shirk your responsibility and don't misunderstand me in in thinking that, well, you're saying that our jobs aren't important because they are. We glorify God by what we do, but it does not define us. God defines us because he has called us to be his child. The calling of God is each Christian's defining attribute. It is our identity. Everything else that we do is done to glorify God. And unless and, we, and until we can do that, we will search for definition from one moment to the next like a frog leaping on a lily pad throughout this vast body of water. And you will never find it. You'll never find it. You'll keep jumping from one attempt to define yourself to the next attempt to define yourself. Because in that search for definition is a lack of contentment unless we define ourselves as children of God. You never become content. It's what's next? How am I going to define myself tomorrow or the next day or what new clothes are going to define me or what new vehicle is going to define me or whatever the case may be. Contentment is always just beyond your grasp. You think you're going to get it, but when you get it, it, you realize it's shallow. It doesn't matter at all. Yesterday morning, I spoke with the peacemakers here and, and we talked about Philippians 4. Philippians 4 says... I have learned to be content in all things. I know what it's like to have nothing and I know what it's like to have abundance and in both of those instances, I, this is Paul speaking, I am content. How was he able to be content? He was content because God defined him, not the search for his own definition of who Paul was. That brings contentment. 
And whenever God defines you, everything else is minor. Nothing else is as important. Now, I'm not saying, as I said about your job, those other things aren't as important. Sometimes we can have wonderful things in our life, but we can get so wrapped up in them that they become the definition of who we are, right? Whatever it may be. If it's a hobby, could be your family. Could be being a dad or being a mom that, that you've been defined as that and that's who you are. No, that's not who you are. You are called by God. You glorify Him by being the best dad possible. You glorify Him by being the best mom possible. But that's not who you are as a human being. You are called by God. So Paul was telling us, telling the readers, that he is called by God. And he's also establishing God's sovereignty in what he did. That it wasn't Paul that chose to be this apostle. It was God that chose Paul to be that apostle. And we see that clearly on the road to Damascus, right? Paul wasn't seeking Jesus at all. As a matter of fact, he was seeking to kill those that believed in him. And yet, all of a sudden, there was that magnificent and miraculous encounter. And he was called to be an apostle. Also gave a great deal of credibility to Paul when he writes that at the beginning of this letter called by God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ an apostle means the one who is sent usually speaking with the authority of the sender the Jews knew well what this word apostle meant so when Paul wrote to other Jewish leaders or other Jews they knew exactly what the meant what that meant Because the Jews had what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 of the wisest priests in Jerusalem. And that was their supreme court. And whenever they issued an order or an edict, they gave that order or edict to a person who took that out with their authority and gave it to the people. Anyone want to venture what that person's name was called or what that person was called? He was an apostle. He spoke with the power and authority of the Sanhedrin. So Paul here is telling people in Corinth, he's telling us, that he is writing with the power and authority of whom? Christ Jesus. So that they know where he's coming from and to whom he is referring. So there were requirements of or to be an apostle. Acts chapters 1 and 2 give us some of those qualifications. You had to be with Jesus throughout the entirety of his earthly ministry. You had to see the resurrected Christ. And you had to be chosen by Jesus himself. And they established these, if you remember back in Acts, when they were trying to find a replacement for Judas, then they established these qualifications. So now we have Paul as a Johnny-come-lately that wasn't with Jesus in the beginning. And these people really didn't want to believe Paul for a number of reasons, one of which is he was a great persecutor of Christians prior to his conversion. So they're asking, what authority does Paul have? And in chapter 15, he says that 
He actually witnessed the risen Christ, that Christ made himself known to the twelve and then to him. When did it happen to him? I mentioned it earlier, on the road to Damascus. As for that first category, Paul refers to himself as one born out of due time. And admits the fact that I, I didn't travel with Jesus. I was born out of due time. That's actually why the era of the apostles is over, folks. So anyone that you hear or see that claim to have apostolic authority or claim to be apostles, uh uh-uh, because we see the qualifications. If you saw the risen Christ, which nobody's done it because he's gone, or you were here and walked with him during his ministry, or he chose you, those are only three ways that you could get there. So, we see also that Paul wasn't writing by himself, was he? He had somebody else with him. This weird name, Sosthenes. Our brother, Sosthenes, refers to him as brother. I think that's important as well. Sosthenes was a unique character. I'd actually forgotten about it until I started the study of this passage. We saw Sosthenes when we went through the book of Acts. Does anybody remember it? Because if you do, you're way better than I was. No. In the 18th chapter of Acts, Paul was preaching in the synagogue at Corinth during his first visit there. The Jews were not happy at all. They didn't accept Paul being there teaching in their synagogue at all. And so he said, fine, blood be on your hands. I'm walking away. He walks away. He goes right next door. He goes right next door and sets up shop, so to speak, starts preaching at a house of Titus Justice. The synagogue leader gets saved, and so he stays there preaching for six months. Six months he stays right next door to the synagogue. They're not happy about this. They kicked him out of the synagogue, and now he's right next door and even saved or caused to be saved, the leader of the synagogue, the Jews were infuriated. So they arrested Paul, and they brought him before Gallio, who was the Roman proconsul or Roman ruler in that area at the time. And they accused Paul of violating the law according to worshiping God. Gallio threw the matter out of court. He's like, why are you wasting my time with this? I deal with Roman laws. That's Jewish law. I got no time for it. Threw it out of court. So whenever he throws it out of court, then we're going to pick it up in verse 18 or verse 17. And we're going to see after he threw the matter out of court, they seized Sosthenes, who was the ruler of the synagogue at the time, and beat him in front of the tribunal. So Gallio throws the case out of court, and so what do they do? Sosthenes, being the leader of the synagogue, they beat him on the courthouse steps. Well, clearly he had to be the prosecutor of Paul, right? He had to be the prosecutor of Paul, and they weren't happy with Sosthenes because he didn't get accomplished what they wanted him to get accomplished, and that was to get Paul executed. See the irony in this, though? So what happens? Sosthenes gets beat by his own people, thrown to the wolves, and who wraps his arms around him and draws him tight, forgives him, loves him big, 
and shows him Jesus. It was Paul, the very person that he was trying to have killed. So he brings Sosthenes in, and Sosthenes then becomes his scribe. Paul is dictating these words to the church at Corinth, and Sosthenes is taking them all down and writing them. Now, I believe it's bigger than this because Sosthenes was a a native of Corinth. He knew all the people and all the people knew him, so it, it, it helps to buttress or support Paul's letter whenever he brings Sosthenes and mentions Sosthenes as a, oh, by the way, your friend that you all know is here with me, and he comes basically vouching for what I'm writing and what I'm saying. So it helped to have a native of Corinth there with Paul, and I believe that's why he mentions him as well. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. So Paul addresses the church of God in Corinth, and then he writes something very curious to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And don't read too much into that. We think of being sanctified as an end result that we're going to get to whenever we all are taken from this world, and sanctification is a process that we have during this time where we become more like Christ Jesus. But yet here he says they are already sanctified and refers to them in that tense, that they are sanctified in Christ. For salvation purposes, we are sanctified in Christ. We have been declared just before God because of the saving work of Jesus. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. So he's telling them that there are people that are saved at this church in Corinth. Those that are called by God also call upon the name of the Lord. And we see that theology in there. That he was called by God and then they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a few weeks we're going to get down to verse 8 and we'll see that this is an exclusive group. It's not actually, it doesn't apply to every single human being. It only applies to this group of people. I'm not going to deal with that this morning. We see that there are true believers in Corinth, we see that this church is filled with true believers. Paul refers to them as saints. Saints, you think, saints. And take off the knowledge of Catholicism that you have here. Saints aren't super Christians. Saints aren't people that we kind of worship or pray to or give homage to or set up big shrines to. It's you and me. Saints are us. We're saints because we've been sanctified through the blood of Christ Jesus. There were saints, he's saying, in Corinth. Now that may surprise some of you. There were all kinds, and we're going to see all kinds of different problems with this church in Corinth. You name it, this church did it. It was horrific, the things that were going on within this church. But yet he's saying they were saints. They were of God, but they weren't living like they were of God. They were of God because you're going to see him 
encourage them to treat each other a little differently than what we treat non-believers. And it's kind of going to all fall in line as we move through it. They were of the Father, but they weren't acting like children. And that was a problem. John MacArthur gives this story, and I love this story. He got arrested whenever he was 10 years old. When he was 10 years old, he was taken to jail because he was stealing cigars. It was cigars at the Sears and Roebuck store. And his dad was a pastor. And so the police called him, and his dad, also named John, was on the golf course with their elders playing golf, and the police called him and said, hey, we got your son down here at the police department for stealing cigars. And he thought it was a joke. He thought it was a joke. He said, you know, that was my dad, but he said, I wasn't acting like his son. And he said, one thing the police asked me, he says, you're not acting like you're the father of a pastor. We have that problem as Christians, right? This Corinthian church severely had that problem. They weren't acting like they were children of God. They were acting like they were children of darkness. And Paul's goal was to enlighten them on how true children of God should act. And I think we can all learn a lot through that. If you remember back in Acts 18, Paul was so depressed over the sin that was going on in this Corinthian church that he wanted to leave, and God came to him and spoke to him directly. And he said, quote, I have many in this city who are my people. So he stayed. I have many in this city who are my people. But as I close, I want to turn back to how Paul defines himself. And I want you to take that away from here more than anything else because I think that application can do us so much good. Ask yourself, what defines you? Is it the way you look? Is it what you drive, where you live? Is it your occupation? Is it your bank account? Is it your family? Because it should be the fact that you are called by God. When God defines us, when we realize that our true meaning of who we are is God, then all those other things that I mentioned before seem to fade into the background. They become less important. They don't require all of our attention. We we give them what they deserve and only what they deserve in everything we do to the glory of God. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you as we begin this wonderful endeavor into this new letter. Father Paul, or you gave Paul so much wisdom that he had to share with all of us, Father, and this idea or notion of defining who we are Help us with that because it is our human nature to define ourselves with other things, with other things that we can control, with other things that glorify us as individuals, Lord. But, but help us to remember that we exist to glorify you and that we are defined as your children, not by what we do or don't do, not by things that are material, things that are passing, things that really matter nothing 
once this life is over. Help us to all know and understand that we are children, we are your children, and that should be what defines us and nothing else. And Lord, if there are those in here that are not, that they would seek you, that they would come to know you as your child, to know the sacrifice that our Lord and Savior Jesus made so that each of us may have eternal life and that we can have forgiveness of sins, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand.